Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Nicole O'Brien, MD, about the article, The Epidemiology of Vasospasm in Children with Moderate to Severe Traumatic Brain Injury, published in Critical Care Medicine in March 2015. Dr. O'Brien works as an associate professor of clinical medicine in the Department of Critical Care at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you for being here today, Nicole. And thank you so much for having me, Margaret. Would you give us some background to your study? What do we know about vasospasm in children with TBI, and what led you to do this particular study? Yeah, you know, I think the clinical side of things is actually what led me to this research question. I think pretty early in my career, I realized that I genuinely enjoyed taking care of these kids with traumatic brain injury. Primarily because they would be really quite ill, and then often six, 12 months down the road, they would come back uh, to the unit really doing quite well. And that was interesting to me, And but it begged the question then, what about those kids that weren't uh, doing quite well at six and 12 months? What was different about those kids? What had potentially happened to them that contributed to their worst outcomes? So I started looking into what possibly was leading to secondary brain injury in some of these kids. And one of the things that kept coming up as I was thinking about it was this concept of vasospasm. It made sense to me that if vasospasm was significant enough and reduced cerebral blood flow enough to the point of cerebral ischemia, that we could potentially be causing secondary ischemic injury in these kids, and at least in some of them, worsening their uh, outcomes. And so that's what really got me, you know, the clinical side of things is what got me very interested in, you know, in answering this research question of does vasospasm even exist in these kids? And if so, what does it look like as far as onset, duration, time course? So how did you set about answering that question? Yeah, so we developed a prospective observational study here at Nationwide Children's. We included children age 0 to 17 with moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. We define that as a Glasgow coma score of less than or equal to 12, and that was a post-resuscitation Glasgow coma score, and they had to have abnormal head imaging. We excluded kids who had had injuries that were deemed non-survivable by the uh, treatment team and had Glasgow coma scores of three and fixed and dilated pupils. We also excluded kids that had previous diagnosis of severe developmental disability and kids with sickle cell disease. The reason we excluded kids with sickle cell disease is they've got known alterations in their cerebral blood flow velocity that could have potentially impacted the outcomes of our study. And so with those inclusion and exclusion criteria, we screened 83 kids here at Nationwide Children. We excluded six that had non-survivable injuries and two with severe developmental disabilities. And then we had six parents who either refused to consent to the study or who were not available to consent to the study within the first 24 hours of injury. So that took us down to about 69 uh, traumatic brain injury patients over the course of about two and a half years that participated in our study. What we did then to investigate for vasospasm or to start to look at what the prevalence was is we performed transcranial Doppler ultrasounds, or TCDs for sake of abbreviation, (laughs) uh, within 24 hours from the time of their injury. 
And then we perform daily transcranial Dopplers through hospital day eight or death or discharge, whichever came first. Of note, if the child did still have vasospasm ongoing at day eight post-injury, we continued those daily transcranial Doppler ultrasounds until we had resolution of the vasospasm, since one of the goals of this paper was to look at kind of the complete time course of vasospasm. Who did all these studies? Yeah, so myself and uh, Dr. Tenzing Ma, who is one of the co-investigators, we were both trained on how to do these studies, and so we performed them ourselves at the bedside. So how did you define vasospasm? Yeah, so I think this should be noted as an important limitation to the study in that there's no randomized controlled studies that evaluate transcranial-derived velocities to angiographic data of vasospasm in children. And so we defined vasospasm as cerebral blood flow velocities greater than two standard deviations above an age and gender normal value, as well as a Lindegard ratio greater than three. And what the Lindegard ratio is, is it's a ratio basically of the flow velocity in the middle cerebral artery to the flow velocity in the extracranial internal carotid artery. Previous studies in adults have shown that a Lindegard ratio less than three, but with high flow velocity, suggests hyperemia, whereas a high flow velocity with a Lindegard ratio greater than three suggests vasospasm. And so we included that in part of our diagnostic criteria for this study. And those criteria were developed basically with an expert consensus of uh, individuals who take care of patients with traumatic brain injury and are familiar with transcranial Doppler ultrasound techniques. So how, how often did you find vasospasm in this population? Yes. So in our 69 patients, we had 35 patients who were considered moderate traumatic brain injury and 34 who were considered to have had severe traumatic brain injury. It varied as far as the prevalence based on which blood vessel we were looking at. For the middle cerebral artery, the overall prevalence was 21%. It was 8.5% in those kids with a moderate TBI and 33.5% in those kids with a severe TBI. So quite a, quite a big difference. For the basilar artery, the overall incidence was 12%. Uh, it was only 3% in those kids with moderate TBI and was 21% in those kids with severe TBI. And you define moderate and severe by what their GCS was, right? Exactly. So GCS of 8 or less was severe and 8 to 12 or 9 to 12 was moderate. Did you find any kids who had vasospasm of both circulations? We did. There, there, were, there are children that had vasospasm of only one of their middle cerebral arteries. There are kids who had both middle cerebral arteries, and there are kids that had one or both middle cerebral arteries as well as the basilar artery. Interesting. Was there a difference in outcome if, according to whether or not there was vasospasm present? Yes. Yeah, so for the purposes of this study, so far we are just reporting our really short-term neurologic outcomes. So what we've reported so far is just the Glasgow Outcome Score Extended Pediatric Version at one month post-injury. And I just want to point out that the GOSPEDS is an age-appropriate measure to look at neurologic outcome in these kids. But the numbers of one through eight are actually opposite of the adult GOSE score. So for the GOSE score, one is considered a good score, 
and eight represents a child who has died. Uh-huh. So for the purposes of this study, we considered a good outcome as a GOSE peds of four or less, which would be a lower moderate disability or better, mm-hmm. or a poor outcome, which would be a GOSE peds of five through eight. And so what we found then at one month was in the children with moderate traumatic brain injury, only 40% of those kids with vasospasm had good neurologic outcomes compared to 76% of the children with moderate brain injury without vasospasm. And in our severely injured kids, we found a good outcome at one month in those kids with vasospasm only 15% of the time. And that was all the way up to 29% in the kids with severe traumatic brain injury without vasospasm. And so that that data is very early and Mm -hmm. it's certainly not comprehensive as far Mm -hmm. as neurodevelopmental outcome testing. And it doesn't speak necessarily to long-term functional outcomes, but it certainly is an interesting signal that we're picking up. Are you planning to do longer-term follow-up in these kids? Yeah, so we have ongoing neurodevelopmental testing on these kids to look at Glasgow outcome scores as well as some more in-depth measures of long-term functional outcomes that are ongoing as we speak. Well, that'll be interesting to see. Yes. (laughs) Did you treat the kids who had vasospasm? We did not, primarily because part of the goal of this study was to not just find the incidence, but also to look at what the natural time course was as far as when was it onset, how long did it last, that kind of thing, as well as the fact that we're still not sure at this point what it means for these kids long term. Right, right. Or whether you can or should treat it, I suppose. Exactly. There's nothing known on that. Were the clinicians taking care of the children aware of your findings? They were not. The bedside clinicians were blinded to the TCD examination. So all these kids were just treated according to whatever the your traumatic brain injury protocol is, which pretty much follows the guidelines, as I understand. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Were you able to identify any risk factors for the development of vas- vasospasm? Yeah, this was actually uh, fairly interesting. When we looked at clinical factors that we found on univariate analysis associated with vasospasm, we found probably not surprisingly that lower Glasgow coma scores and higher injury severity scores were associated with vasospasm. We also found, though, that fever greater than 38 degrees on admission or a mechanism of injury being involved in a motor vehicle accident were also associated with vasospasm development. And then on multivariate analysis, when we controlled for... Glasgow coma score and injury severity score, uh, mechanism of injury being involved in a motor vehicle accident ended up being still an independent predictor of the onset of phasospasm with an odds ratio of 3.5. Interesting. Yes. Do you have any speculations as to why that might be? Well, you know, this is, this is, I think, where we get into the interesting thoughts about the pathophysiology behind phasospasm following traumatic brain injury. I think probably the leading thought as far as what happens to cause vasospasm is that the blood products that are deposited in and around the brain at the time of injury over time get phagocytosed by macrophages. And as that happens and the erythrocytes are metabolized, there's a ton of oxygen-free radical species that get generated. Those cause a uh, conformational change in the lipid bilayer of the vascular endothelial cells. And then you end up with this imbalance between cerebral vasoconstrictive and cerebral vasodilatory enzymes that results in the vasospasm. And that, however, I think takes time to develop. It typically takes two, three, or four days before you start to see that effect happening. And certainly in this cohort of patients, we did have a fair number of kids who had time to onset of their vasospasm day three or four. In fact, that was the mean time of onset of vasospasm for our kids. 
However, we had about seven or eight kids that had onset of vasospasm as early as day one post-injury, which is a little early if you think about it in terms of that pathophysiologic mechanism. One other proposed mechanism out there for the development of post-traumatic vasospasm is that you get direct stretch, torsion, and bending of vessels at the time of the primary injury, and this in and of itself results in an early onset vasospasm. And so I'm wondering if children, because their neck is relatively weak and their head is relatively large and heavy proportionally to the rest of their body, their brain water content is higher, supportive structures are less well-developed, that when involved in rapid acceleration, deceleration accidents, such as a motor vehicle accident, if we're seeing some of this direct stretch and torsion of the vessels leading to vasospasm. You mentioned that the average onset of vasospasm is usually is around three to four days. How long did it last? Yeah, so in our cohort, the mean duration of vasospasm was two days. However, we had a pretty wide range of anywhere from one to six days. And just really quick, back to the time of onset, while we had that mean day of onset, I think it's also important to note that we had onset as early as day one, but we also had one child who had onset of vasospasm post-injury day eight. And so quite a lot later than the rest of the cohort. So what I think that points out to me as a clinician is it happens and it can happen really early or it can happen relatively late in the time course of these kids. We should probably be aware of that. You also mentioned earlier that you had some children who had multiple vessels uh, involved. Did you have enough to be able to look at outcomes in the children with multiple vessels involved compared to those with only one vessel? And you've already said that the children with vasospasm had a somewhat worse one-month outcome than children without vasospasm. Yeah, we unfortunately tried to look at that, but just didn't have enough numbers yeah. with a multi-vessel to actually get much out of that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what are the implications for your study for our current care of children with traumatic brain injuries? Is there anything that we should do or be thinking about doing? And where do we go from here? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question uh, that I think about quite often. There are several adult studies that have reported that there's a clear association between post-traumatic vasospasm and neurologic deterioration and non-contusion-related areas of infarct. And those same studies in adults have reported improved vasospasm and improved outcomes when they used nemodipine intra-arterial papaverin, intra-arterial calcium channel blockers, things like that in those patients. And so I'm certainly not proposing that that's what we pursue on all of these kids. But what I do think that we should at least consider is at least aggressively screening children for vasospasm in these high-risk kids, in the kids that are severely injured with low GCS scores, high injury severity scores, who have been involved in motor vehicle accidents. You know, transcranial Doppler ultrasound is non-invasive. It's completely portable. It can easily be done and repeated daily at the bedside. And, you know, screen those kids. And then if you're truly seeing signs of neurologic deterioration or worsening ischemic brain injury that you can't otherwise explain for that child, to maybe at least consider what therapeutic options have been tried. Interesting. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Uh, Yeah. Well, first of all, I would like to thank you so much for the opportunity to meet with you today and share my research. I would also like to thank the nurses, staff, physicians here at Nationwide Children's Hospital for all of their help and support for this project. 
I would especially like to thank my co-authors, Dr. Tenzing Ma and Keith Yates, who without them, I never would have been able to do this study. And then lastly, the Research Institute here at Nationwide Children's Hospital, who provided the intramural funding grant that supported this research. Well, thank you very much, Nicole. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, too, Margaret. I really appreciate the opportunity. We have been talking today with Dr. Nicole O'Brien from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, about the article, The Epidemiology of Vasospasm in Children with Moderate to Severe Traumatic Brain Injury, published in Critical Care Medicine in March 2015. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion, or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash Project Dispatch. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email icriticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.